We have an anchor that keeps the soul steady. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. Sometimes there are a number of barriers that stand between people and the Lord. There are a number of reasons why they choose not to become a follower of God. This man, however, was a good man, did a lot of good things. But one thing kept him from serving the Lord. And so tonight I want us to look at his life and what Mark says about him. And you can read the account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the different narratives of this account. I want to begin as we think about this man that let one thing stand between him and Jesus. I want us to begin by noting the, inv- the, inv- the investigation of the man. I'll get it out in a minute. The investigation of the man. And in looking at this text, I want to underscore his identity. Because this man, at least from where I stand, was honest, sincere, and by way of investigation asked a very pertinent question. So think about his identity for just a moment or two. The text tells us in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, that he is a young man, so we think about his age. In Luke chapter 18, verse 18, he is identified as a young man of authority. And then in chapter 10, verse 22 of our lesson text, he is identified as a young man of great abundance. So you put it all together, and what do you have? You have a guy who is young, powerful, and rich or wealthy. Now, there are a lot of people in our world today, if you were to ask them, how would you like to be young, powerful, and wealthy? What would they say? Sign me up. I mean, most folks, that's what they're looking for in life, isn't it? And so by the standards of the world, this guy had everything. And there are people today that no doubt have very similar credentials. They have age on their side. They have a lot of authority and they weld that power in a lot of different places. And then by way of possessions, they have more than they could ever hope to spend in a lifetime. But then note, if you would, his investigation of Jesus. The Bible says as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him. And so he asked Jesus, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, there are a lot of questions that we could ask in life, but is there a more profound question? I mean, think about this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a guy that's got youth on his side, power on his side, wealth on his side, and yet he is interested in spiritual things. As a matter of fact, he is a religious young man. So much so that he wants to know from Jesus, okay, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? So yes, it's a profound question. 
But not only is it a profound question, it is a powerful question. There are a lot of questions that you and I could ask today that pack a great punch in life. But what question carries more weight than the question that he asked? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then add to that, here is a personal question. He didn't ask, what does my neighbor need to do to inherit eternal life? What does my mother or father need to do? But what do I need to do? Wouldn't it be great if everybody had that kind of personal reflection in terms of their spiritual relationship with the Lord? Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody today wanted to know, okay, what do I need to do to be right with God? So, from one vantage point, you have to applaud his interrogation of the Lord. So I think about the investigation of this man. But then there's a second thing that stands out in our text, and that is the quotation to the man. Now, listen, if you would, to the Lord's response. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Now, this man had addressed Jesus as good teacher. And what Jesus is saying to him, in effect, is this. Are you putting me on a plane equal to God? Because no one is intrinsically good but one, and that is God. Jesus had the reputation as a great teacher, didn't he? Do you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? And he said, teacher, we know, we know that you've come from God because no man can do the signs which you're doing unless God is with him. So the reputation of Jesus, there were a lot of folks that no doubt had heard Jesus. They had seen him at work. They had the opportunity to see firsthand the great miracles that he performed. Those miracles authenticated his claims to deity because John said, the works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So here this, this man asked Jesus a very important question. But in framing this question, he identifies him as a good master, a good teacher. And so Jesus wants to know, why do you call me good? For no one is good except one, and that is God. Was Jesus God? Yes, he was God in the flesh. Do you remember Matthew said, in citing the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 7 verse 14, he said of Jesus that he is Emmanuel, which is God with us. John said in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, that is that eternal Logos, the one who created the world, he said the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So yes, God incarnate. So he wants to know, why do you call me good? Because after all, no one is good but one, and that is God. So the Lord's response, but now note if you would, the law that is recited. What Jesus is going to do, he's going to point him to the commands in the law. You know the commandments, which, by the way, suggest his familiarity with the law of God, doesn't it? 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now listen, if you would, to the response of this young man. He said, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. So, putting it into perspective, what would you draw from this conversation? This is a good guy, isn't it? I mean, from the vantage point of morality, integrity, character. I mean, you've got to say this guy is a religious person. So much so that he would stand head and shoulders above a lot of, above a lot of folks, wouldn't he? I mean, look at, look at what he says. You know, I'm not out running around on my mate. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I don't bear false witness about other people. I don't defraud people. And I honor my parents. Let me tell you what. That kind of character would go a long way in changing the landscape of our nation today, wouldn't it? If people in our world today simply complied with those commands, think about what a difference the world would be in which we live. Think about how different America would be. And so, the conformity to the law. You see, there were the commands in the law, but this young man said, look, I have conformed my life to these commands. In other words, Lord, I have submitted my life to the commands of God. I'm doing your will. But, one of the other texts says that he asked, what do I lack? In other words, is there something missing in my life? And again, we talk about the character, integrity, morality of this man. Add to that the fact that here's somebody who, at least on the surface, surface seems to be conscientious, doesn't he? I mean, he's just asked the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has said, look, you know what the commands teach. Now, Jesus didn't cite all of the commands, did he? In going back to the Decalogue, he cited some of the Ten Commandments, but not all of the Ten Commandments. So this guy wants to know, okay, is there something missing? Again, wouldn't it be great if people in the church today would sit down in front of the mirror called the Word of God and ask the question on a daily basis, okay, is there something missing in my life? Is there some necessary ingredient in my Christian character, in my way of thinking, in how I conduct myself? Is there something missing that would make me more complete in my service to God? So, with that being said, I want you to now consider for just a moment the repudiation of this man. Now, the Bible says that Jesus demonstrated compassion toward him. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. The compassion of Jesus. Now, sometimes we look at Jesus as he interacts with different people 
throughout his ministry. Compassion was evident in his life on a number of occasions. I think about when a leper came to him and asked to be healed. And the Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion and cleansed that man of his leprosy. Jesus was and is compassionate toward people today. And look at what it said. Mark said he loved him. Is there anyone in the world today that Jesus doesn't love? The Bible tells us that God is love, isn't he? And the Bible says, for God so loved the world. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. Look, Jesus loves all people. Jesus loved this man. Did he understand where this man was in his relationship to God? Yes, he did. Did he see a flaw in his life? The answer is yes. And yet, despite that flaw, despite the fact that something was lacking in his spiritual life, he still loved him. What's that say about how the Lord views us? Sometimes people, because of where they've been, what they've done, how they've acted in life, in their mind, they feel so unworthy. And from their vantage point, the Lord could never love them. And sometimes I think people equate their obedience to God with his love for them. Look, we do not deserve God's love, do we? Never have, never will. When we were yet in sin, the Bible says Christ died for us. So, God does not condone our sin, but he still loves us, doesn't he? So the Bible says he loved this man. But note, if you would, the challenge that was issued by Jesus. He said, one thing you lack, and I can just imagine, I can just imagine the countenance of this young fellow. You know, he's asked Jesus a powerful question, a profound question, a personal question. And Jesus has cited the law. He has expressed his conformity to that law. And so as we would say, everything seems to be going well. So I could just imagine him thinking, you know what? The Lord's going to say, you know what? You're on the road. Just keep, keep heading in the direction that you're going. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? He said, no, you still lack one thing. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. And the Bible says you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross, and follow me. There was something deficient in the life of this young man, wasn't there? What was that deficiency? Apparently, covetousness was a problem, wasn't it? Covetousness is equated to idolatry. And so in citing the commands in the Decalogue, Jesus didn't say anything about, you're not to have other gods before me. Didn't say anything about, you're not to covet. But he was covetous, wasn't he? At least, apparently he was. Because... Listen to what he said in verse 22 by way of commentary. But he was sad at this word and went away grieved 
for he had great possessions. Luke says he was very rich. So what's the Lord saying? He's saying simply this. There's something standing between you and me. And that something is your riches. So here's what you need to do. You need to sell out. Give everything away and then take up your cross and follow me. Do you think that there are people today that maybe they don't have multiple barriers between them and obeying God, but there's just this one thing standing between them and obeying God? Could it be that family could stand in the way of our obedience to God, you say, I don't understand how that could ever happen. Well, let me just call attention to the words of Jesus. Go back and look at Luke. Or turn over and look at Luke chapter 14 for a minute. I want you to see something here. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, the Bible talks about how great multitudes were following Jesus. And the Bible says, he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, Jesus said, he cannot be my disciple. Now just think about that for a minute. He's not saying that literally we are to hate our family members. What he is saying is, in terms of In terms of priority, he takes first place, doesn't he? That we are to love him above any and everything, and that would include our family members, our friends, our possessions, whatever. We're to love him above our own life. Years ago, I remember a friend of mine who was a tremendous personal worker, engaged in a series of studies with an older lady. And this lady was a very frequent visitor to our services. Matter of fact, she was there, I, I, I would imagine, every Sunday night. More faithful to come on Sunday night than many of our own members. And I remember he said, as they went through that series of meetings and got down to the very final meeting, when it's time to, as we would say, close the sale. Here's what she said. I made a deathbed promise to my mother that I would never go in the church of Christ. Now, I really believe had her mother been alive or if her mother could have spoken to her at that point point in time, you know what she would have said? Obey the gospel. And don't you think that's what Jesus is saying here? The Lord's saying, look, you have to love me above everybody. What's what's the strongest love that we feel in life? Family love, isn't it? As a parent, the love that exists between the parents and the children, or a husband, a wife, sibling love, isn't that a strong, isn't there a strong tie, a, a strong bind there? Yes. And Jesus is saying, look, If you're going to follow me, you've got to understand in terms of priority, in terms of rank, I have to be first. You can't let somebody 
In your family, you can't let a friend, you can't let anything stand between you and me. And sadly, sometimes we do. And then notice also what he said. You've got to love him above yourself. That is, above your wants, your wishes, your will, and your way. Let me tell you what, that's not easy, is it? What's he saying? I demand number one, don't I? Remember what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Wouldn't you say to this young man, he's saying, look, you want to follow me, it's all about me. I mentioned family. Sometimes finances, yes, finances come between us and serving the Lord. Because we, we become so consumed with the material side of life that we lose sight of what's really important in life. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, Second Corinthians chapter 4 talks about how we're not to look at the things which are seen necessarily, but rather at the things which are not seen. Because the things which are seen, he said, are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. So sometimes our view of life becomes skewed, so to speak. Let me just very quickly throw this in. In talking to this young man, this young ruler... And saying, look, there's something missing in your life. There's something lacking. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, all right, you want to follow me, you need to understand I come first. But add to that, before you ever sign on the the dotted line and say, you know what, I'm going to become your follower, you need to step back and count the cost. You need to understand what's involved in following me. So when Jesus told this young man, all right, Here's what you need to do. You need to sell everything you have, distribute to the poor, and then follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. That is a big demand, isn't it? You want to talk about counting the cost, all right? Here it is. My wealth here or my wealth over on the other side. Count the cost. So listen to what Jesus says in verse 28. Which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. I mean, doesn't common sense say to us that, you know what, before you launch out into a building program, you better make sure you got the funds to back up what you're going to build. The second illustration is about a man going to war. What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Okay, you are a general. and You're going to war. And you understand that you're going up against an enemy that outnumbers you two to one. You really want to take that on? Is that what you want to do? Well, before you do it, you better make sure that you count the cost And so in verse 32 he said, Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, having said that, go back and look at our text again very quickly. In verse 22, Mark said, This man became sad at the words of Jesus and became grieved or Luke says, became very sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So now listen, if you would, to the caution, the caution 
of Jesus. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Now, first you need to understand, this young rich fellow, he was dejected, wasn't he? And what Jesus is saying to us today is, there is a danger. There is an inherent danger associated with wealth or riches or money. And that danger and the words of caution are issued to mankind as a whole. Now Jesus said, look, at, look again at what the Lord said in verse 24. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Look, there's nothing wrong with wealth or money. The Bible talks about Abraham being exceedingly very rich back in the book of Genesis chapter 13. Nothing wrong at all with wealth. But what happens sometimes is people allow wealth and material goods and money to obscure their view of spiritual things. And so what what happens is the material side of life crowds out the spiritual side. Do you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when Paul said those who are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and snare and many foolish and hurtful lust which drown men in destruction and perdition? And then he said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil which some men having reached after have pierced themselves through with many sorrows and been led astray from the face. Sometimes money, wealth, material goods undermines our relationship to God. Sometimes it's a barrier in obeying God, in becoming one of His children. Now then in verse 17, here's what Paul said to people who are rich. Charge them that are rich in this present world not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Jesus, Jesus said, look, People who trust in riches, it's going to be really tough for them to become a part of the kingdom of God. We are stewards of what we possess. God has richly blessed us, and all he's saying to us is, use what you have wisely. Be a good steward. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Now, think about this guy. The text, at least, his conversation with Jesus comes to what we might say an abrupt end. And the rest of the story, at least as far as we know, he walked away. There are some folks that can't see, they can't see the light for the darkness. Don't let anything stand between you and the Lord. Sometimes that's easier said than done. Whatever might be a barrier in your life to serving the Lord, don't let that barrier stand in your way. Go over it, under it, around it, whatever. This fellow had a golden opportunity. Good man, yes. In the eyes of the world, a really good man. 
but he missed the boat. So tonight in closing, I know sometimes it's very easy for us to think about we're good neighbors, we're good family members, we're a good friend, got a good reputation, sterling character, etc. We've got all these great things, but the thing that we really need, and that is a relationship with the Lord, we don't have. So what would we need to do What would we need to do to become a disciple of Jesus? Well, here it is. Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God and you would be willing to repent of your sins, walk away from a life of sin, confess the name of Christ, be buried with him in baptism, the Bible says you can enjoy the remission of your sins, forgiveness, Acts 2, 38. God will put you in the church. And you can enjoy the benefits and the blessings of being a child of God. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, but you're not, you're really not what you ought to be. And you want the prayers of the church. Look, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you tonight. And the assurance is God will abundantly pardon every sin. 1 John 1, 9. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love